difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with... Scott Tobias. Genevieve Kosky. Tasha Robinson is on some kind of crime spree or something, but we do have our special guest, Angelica J. Bastian, joining us again this week. Hi, Angelica. Hello, y'all. In our last episode, we revisited Thelma and Louise, the landmark 1991 film that used hallmarks of the road movie to explore the state of gender relations. This week, we return our attention to another movie that uses a recognizable form to go to some unexpected places, Birds of Prey and the Infantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn. Critics, those on this podcast included, didn't find a lot to like about the 2018 film Suicide Squad, a kind of dirty dozen gloss featuring a team of supervillains turned heroes who fight a greater enemy, in this case, a lot of CGI goop. But almost everyone agreed that Margot Robbie offered a winning spin on Harley Quinn, a Batman-adjacent character first introduced as the Joker's girlfriend in the 90s series Batman the Animated Series. Since then, Harley has become a fixture of comics and developed into a wild card whose madness also gifts her with a kind of self-awareness. It's that Harley that shows up in Birds of Prey, a film directed by Kathy Yan from a script by Christina Hodson. Having parted ways with the Joker, Harley finds herself an object of revenge for the many Gotham underworld residents she's wronged or just annoyed over the years. These include Black Mask, a sadistic crime lord who covets a diamond containing the secret codes that will allow him to access a great fortune. The only problem it's in the possession of the young pickpocket Cassandra Kane, played by Ella J. Basco. Also seeking the diamond, jaded police detective Renee Montoya, played by Rosie Perez, a mysterious crossbow killer, played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead, and supersonic singer Dinah Lance, played by Journey Smollett-Bell. Who will prevail? Bird to Prey's twisty, chronology-breaking approach takes a circuitous route to revealing the answer. And we'll talk it over after the break. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. You know what a harlequin is? A harlequin's role is to serve. It's nothing without a master. No one gives two shits who we are beyond that. The Joker and I broke up. I wanted a fresh start. But it turns out I wasn't the only Damon Gotham looking for emancipation. Miss Quinn, she brought me. Who are you guys? Here's the deal, Quinn. You need me. He's after all of us now. All right, just generally speaking, what do everyone think about this film? Angelica, I believe you are a Birds of Prey super fan, so why don't you go first? Oh, okay, <laughs> wow. I, I guess I'm going to be saddled with that label. Um, I, I do really dig the film. I should say, you know, sometimes movies come to you at the right time. The first time I saw the film, I was in New York, and it was a press screening, and I didn't like it. Oh, so hmm, okay. the first time I saw it, I thought the structure really worked against what the film was successful at. And then I saw it for a second time in IMAX for the Chicago screening. And something about it really clicked into place. The performances were working. Even the structure felt like it worked better for me. 
even then, I still think the structure, like in the first third of the movie, is is like I get what they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. I just don't think it's very successful at fully doing the whole. We're putting you in Harley's weird mind. Let's like kind of play with structure and go back in time just four minutes because what the hell? Who cares? Sometimes that worked. Sometimes it didn't. But in the last few times watching the film, it just really just has captured my imagination because it's all about the pleasure principle. It's aesthetically very vibrant. The soundtrack slaps. The performances are distinctive and fun. The costume design by Aaron Bannock is amazing. Like, I just bought the overalls that Harley wears because (laughs) I had to. I mean, they're gold. I love gold. And I'm I, very jealous. Yeah, and <laughs> I, it's, I put them on today and I was like, oh, I'm totally going to be wearing these a lot during the summer because these are just, <laughs> I feel confident in them. I even wore red lipstick to honor Harley because she's always wearing some fierce red lipstick. <laughs> and it's funny because I usually don't really like comic book films. I'm someone who grew up reading comics. I remember Mark Wade's Born to Run with the Flash, Wally West version of the Flash, coming out when I was about 10 years old and that really captured my imagination and you know got me obsessed with not just DC characters but just the wider art of comic books in general but I think most of these movies that come out based on you know well-known long-running comic properties are complete trash mostly I think they're boring they're not that fun they're bland looking the action sucks And the least you can do is have some, like, break some bones, man. And this movie was breaking some bones. I don't think it's a perfect movie. There's a few little things that sometimes bug me. It's mostly the structure. And also, I'm, like, torn about Black Mask and Vister's ass as, like, they're very queer subtexts. Like, there's so many moments in the film where I kept thinking, oh, they're totally going to kiss right now, right? They're they're so (laughs) going to just start making out. Of course, they never do because these movies seem so disconnected from the libido of these characters. Despite everybody being super hot, you'd think people would be screwing around all the time. If I <laughs> look was in superhero shape, I would be a slut, but <laughs> apparently that's not how it goes in those movies. But on the flip side, Harley's a very tactile character, which I really like. And like her obsession with that egg sandwich is such a simple pleasure, but I connected to her because of that. I'm like, I have totally been there where I can't eat something that I really want to eat, and a girl is mad. And, like, (laughs) totally ruined my day. And Margot Robbie's performance, I feel, is just so joyous and textured. And even what she does with Harley's voice to make it more her own, because Harley's voice is such a distinctive part of that character and was so defined by... Arlene Sorkin on Batman the Animated Series and then later Tara Strong and things like the Arkham Asylum games. But yeah, I really enjoyed the movie and I've been kind of depressed in the past week. So getting to rewatch it on Monday was just a really fun experience. And sometimes it's just nice to feel like that rush of joy and pleasure you get with seeing a movie on a big screen that just captures your interest and people are hot and they're wearing great clothing and they're doing fun stuff and they're kind of clashing in interesting ways. Yeah, it was a good time at the movies. <laughs> yeah, I, it was, it's interesting because I'm aware, obviously, uh, Angelica, that you're a big fan of this movie. So it was interesting to hear you talk about it and kind of your your critiques of it are the same critiques I had. Like the structure was hard for me to to get my head around mm-hmm. a little, uh, not to sound too much like that uh, anonymous Oscar ballot guy who couldn't figure out the chronology <laughs> in Little Women. <laughs> um, but on first viewing, because I also did saw, saw this a second time, and on first viewing, the way it jumps around in time and jumps between the different characters really kind of made it feel like this was two movies that had kind of been grafted together. It's like, well, we can't do just a Birds of Prey movie, so we got to, and we can't do just a Harley Quinn movie, so we got to mash them together somehow. It it felt like there wasn't a real through line there, other than like Harley being the one that brings the Birds of Prey together. But seeing it a second time, the structure worked a little more for me, at least in the in the early going when it is sort of jumping between the different uh, characters in their timeline, because I was thinking of it sort of as a, a comic. 
comic book, like like an, an arc, you know, it's like, okay, so this we're getting the Re- Renee Montoya issue here, and then we're getting the Dinah Lance issue, you know, and it's it starts with Harley, and then we go through these other characters, and then they all come together in the last three issues, they're all together. So I, I sort of like processed it that way within a, a run of comics. And it kind of worked a little better for me. I'm still like not totally sold that this uh, on the idea that this movie isn't a little Frankenstein together. But like you, I was just really swept up in the the vibe of this movie. You know, like I also really dig the clothes and the soundtrack and Robbie's performance is so much fun. And you you mentioned like the breaking bones. Like there, I think there are some really good action scenes in this movie. Like I actually think all of the action scenes are really good, and they just like kind of keep getting more inventive while still being. I don't want to say realistically violent because they're very stylized, mm. uh, and I like that that stylizing. But it's it's not shying away from the actual pain and violence of action scenes the way that you know so many Marvel uh, and DC movies do. So um, yeah, I, I, I'm also pretty positive on Harley Quinn while agreeing it's it's not a perfect movie. Um, oh, here I am calling it Harley Quinn instead of Birds of Prey. I'm, I'm part of the problem. They had to, to change this movie's title, you know. Mm-hmm. Birds but, of Prey. Uh, shout out, shout out to Harley Keith, Quinn. Right? Shout out to Keith for sticking with the tortured uh, <laughs> title. It's a better of the title. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I but love yeah. the title. I will say that. I think it's funky, but I kind of love it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a very kind of Harley Quinn title, you know. I mean, it's it's over the top and obnoxious, and it forces you to play by its its own rules. You you know, um, Pretty much. it's right there in the title. But Scott and Keith, what did you think? <laughs> uh, well, I saw this film more than once as well, mostly because my brain is just a big pile of oatmeal right now. And I can't I just I have no ability to retain uh, information. It's your favorite uh, Marvel knowledge. movie, though, right? <laughs> See, we always make this joke. <laughs> uh, um, though I try, I did, I did compare it. It still will compare it to a Marvel property, which is I think I think it's kind of a better model of what Deadpool is trying. to Oh, do. totally. It's very Deadpool too, especially with the kid uh, element. Yeah, in, in, in the language and the violence and the in the mm-hmm. uh, the sort of ain't I a stinker attitude and the you know the irreverence of it is it, it, very similar. But this is a character I I like so much more and a, and an actress I like so much more uh, or actor I guess or whoever I like. And of course, it's a lot, a lot better than Suicide Squad because it's taking the one thing that was tolerable about that movie and building a much better movie around it. So in that sense, I was on board. But it is lumpy, uh, this movie. And, I mean, it, and it may be a structure thing, though, though there's something to be said about the playfulness of it in the way mm-hmm. that she's telling her story her way. And it's going to be full of little digressions. And she, I mean, she's not a storyteller. She's a creator of mayhem. And so it's going to be a little digressive. I almost f- wish it were a little bit more mm-hmm. as aggressive all the way through as it is at the beginning. Yeah, I um, agree. I would have liked just that. It just straightens out, right? Yeah. In, in the last half. So there's that part of it. Uh, and I think there's, but I think there's a sameness that starts to settle in in a lot of the action sequences. It became like, <gasps> it's it's like, it's like we're going to have this piece of music and there's going to be some kind of like bone crushing action and then we're going to do the same sort of thing again down the line it felt the beats of the film felt uh, not as distinct for me as i wanted them as i sort of wished them to be uh, and i felt and it ended up being the energy of the film ultimately became enervating in a way that a lot of these comic book films tend to be as particularly from the dc well actually for both uh, lines so it's just me kind of being cranky generally but <laughs> but I, I do i i think it's a, a better brand of a type of film that i don't usually like it very much so in that sense you know it's 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 interesting keith what did you yeah think? i'm more of a wet blanket i mean i just couldn't get on this film's wavelength there's a lot of things i liked about it and robbie's great i think it's smart to make harley if you're gonna have a focus on harley surrounded with lots of people because you know harley is is a is a seasoning that, that can be a little overwhelming if there's too much or much of her so i think it's good there are other characters in this but and like there's things like like i said there's things i love i love seeing rosie perez in a big movie it's been a mm-hmm. while and I, I she's fantastic and and um, you know, and the character's attitude is fun, and like the, the sandwich stuff is great, but it, but it's, I don't know, I just, I just cannot, it just wore me down, and I'm just kind of tired of. You know, I've liked some of the DC films more lately. I mean, Wonder Woman is almost like a, apart from the others. I think that one's a really good one, but like I, there's, there's sort of like, and I love DC 
comics traditionally, like over the years, I love those characters. So, but the the darkness that they always go for, the graphic violence, the torture scene in this, it was just, it was like, I don't know, is this fun? Uh, I'm talking about the scene where the black mask kills mm-hmm. the family, and it's mm-hmm. like this really graphic yeah, yeah, torture scene. And it's like, skinny, like yeah. I'm, you know, and we're, we go from. Harley laughing and blowing up stuff to this, this you know, scene right out of Saw out of a sudden. I don't know. I, I My favorite thing, I kind of wish they'd done more of this. Um, early on, like when Harley blows up the chemical factory and how we see the explosion <laughs> as like in just fireworks going uh-huh. off and then later they cut to like someone else's perspective and it's just like this really chaotic explosion. You know, I kind of wish they'd done a little bit more mm. from her point of view like that because she is as fun as a crazy person. But I don't know. It's It's... I hate it. It's it's fine. It's just, I, 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 I always refer to people who, who love stuff, so I'm glad that everyone is loving it more than I am. I'm still kind of reeling over Scott saying that the action scenes are samey because they, they felt so distinct to me, or yeah. at least because uh, there's the there's Harley like infiltrating the police station with her, her gun. What does she call that gun? The fun gun? The fun um, gun. Yeah. yeah. And then you, you go into sort of the evidence locker showdown with, with the Black Betty song cue, which I... <laughs> Like Black Betty is one of those songs that like just you need a moratorium on in movies uh, for like a good 20 years. But I actually kind of liked it here. I don't I don't maybe it's just because it feels like such a bratty choice in that moment mm-hmm. that it, 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 it worked for Harley. But I mean, that funhouse showdown at the end, I mean, it's a massive fight scene in a funhouse with people like literally jumping around on like like a bouncy house. Like, I mean, that's... Yeah, okay, that's that, that was yeah. And, and yeah. the roller skate, like her, the chase scene on roller skates where she whips on like the roller derby moves. It's so like, I mean, awesome. Like, like that just felt very inventive and also like to get back to the theme of this pairing, like I don't want to say feminine, but anti-masculine in a way. Like there, there's like a willingness to to, you know, engage with playfulness. That uh, hair tie in, in, moment. The hair tie. Oh, I tweeted like I could write a thousand words on that that one line, and I, I mean I probably couldn't because I barely write anymore, and I'm like my writing <laughs> muscle has atrophied. But in my prime, I could have written. <laughs> I could have written a thousand words about that because it's such a moment that you only get, I think, in a movie about women, written by women, directed by women. You know, there's so much meaning packed into that little line and it's within this broader fight that ha- you know and it has other other lines like that like when she'd have time for a shoe change and in these little moments that are specific to the character's experience as women mm-hmm. within this broader framework of a mass chaotic action scene i want to go back just a moment to say something about the action scenes because they had Chad Stileski, who obviously did my beloved John Wick movies, Mm -hmm. come in. And what I really love about the action scenes and what I really love about this film is that, you know, even though these characters, I wouldn't say, are necessarily deep, they do feel distinct, and their fighting styles also are very distinct. And Mm. so it's really fun seeing Harley Quinn being so acrobatic compared to someone like Renee Montoya, who's more of a bruiser. So it's really fun seeing how their personalities are reflected also in their fighting styles. And then also see like beats like the hair tie moment where you can get a breather and kind of taken the beauty of these shots that Kathy Ann is putting together. I also just want to shout out how delightfully weird Mary Elizabeth Winstead is <laughs> as, as Huntress. Like she just has this awkwardness that totally sells the idea that this character has been isolated on an Italian estate for the last 20 years becoming an assassin. Like she just has no real capacity for normal human interaction in a way that I think makes for some very funny beats within the action sequences and kind of is a fun dynamic with the other women. I just really like Mary Elizabeth Winstead in pretty much everything. Same. She is really good in this. And it's like a fun send-up of the anti-hero as well. It's like the usual beats you expect with the anti-hero are there. They're just made fun of and kind of, you know, but she's still also a badass because, I mean... She's Huntress. I love Huntress. Yeah, never. Don't you mean the crossbow killer? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I like that reading of her. I didn't never really thought about it that way. It was somebody who has that awkwardness for that reason. Of course, he never talks to anybody. Um, So yeah, I I I never thought about that performance in that 
late, even though I've seen it twice. <laughs> what did I even pick up? What did I even pick up? The second viewing? Um, I, terrible. I, I, I think, I I think you may have just been overwhelmed, pre- Scott. I didn't even appreciate the uh, distinct uh, action sequences. I, I lump them all together. Um, <laughs> I and mean, there are roller skates. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I did, and I, I, I like I like a good roller derby scene, and uh, in the pay, it's good there was a payoff to that because I mean just the initial roller derby scene itself was was perfectly uh, enjoyable and Journey Smollett Bell is also in Roll, yeah, Roll she Bounce is. so she's she's already she did her training for this a long time ago oh, wow. it's weird <laughs> that she's been in movies this long yeah, yeah. she has. Well, she's in Eve's Bayou isn't she yeah, yeah she's an amazing in Eve's Bayou like that's such a oh. treasured movie of mine but and was Roll Bounce before though even no that's after really yeah, yeah that's in the, that was 2000s yeah yeah she's good I like her I like Journey Smollett Bell I wish the best for her because I think she is like a great actress that just hasn't like had that one role that like as an adult, you know what I mean? That would really kind of push her career to the next level. Mm -hmm. And I really liked her in this and I love Black Canary as a character. And I think she really gets at the heart of the character, even though you don't get too much of her, but she, she's like rough hewn, but she still has a heart. And man, I like want, everything from her closet like dear god that blue and gold would look so good on me y'all oh, don't suits? even know yeah suits so honey good. oh i could see myself in this Woo! y'all wouldn't know what to do with me with that i'd like to see it <laughs> You know, to set the ladies aside for a second, I think we do need to talk about what Ewan McGregor is doing in, in this <laughs> oh, movie totally. as Roman uh-huh. Sionis, because it did not work for me on first viewing. It worked for me a little better the second time around, and I'm curious how it played for others. It's inconsistent. It feels like it's kind of strange. It's different from scene to scene. I appreciate that he's going for it, that he's just kind of digging in and you know not holding back on this character i'm not sure it's a remarkable comic book movie villain yeah i mean yeah. there's something kind of stock about this type yeah. of character now mm-hmm. it does, it, it, yeah this i mean i guess the difference is that level of brutality that turned you yeah. off a little bit from the film when you know in other scenes he's quite flamboyant and kind of has a certain charisma but maybe not enough um i think there just needed to be some some more wit there and the, that character yeah. that just is sort of sort of missing it just doesn't, doesn't pop certainly not as not as a counter to you know robbie as harley quinn who's who is so dynamic there just needs to be some sort of equivalent force and uh he's not really yet i mean i think i liked him a little bit more than you guys and i think i just yeah i appreciate him kind of going for it and also the way he said ill i don't know something about that <laughs> I, I kept finding very <laughs> hilarious and just his little touches in it but yeah i will agree that it is like Harley Quinn is such a force that it's very easy for other performances to get kind of swallowed up around her if you're not bringing the right level of charm and wit and charisma. I think what worked for me on a second viewing or or what clicked for me on a second viewing, and I agree that I don't think the character as written has enough there, but I think what McGregor does kind of draw out is this sort of petulant child quality like he's a spoiled rich kid who wants daddy's attention and he also just wants to possess everything and everyone like that scene where he's showing Dinah like all his little shrunken heads and and whatnot like like literal tchotchkes made of human humans he has this childlike desire to have all his things and the things he wants because he's twisted are horrible and cause you know violence and mayhem and it's an odd fit with that sort of like i said petulant child aspect of his character but i think it also is a sort of interesting echo of Harley's characterization because there is a sort of juvenile aspect to Harley as well, this sort of chaotic mayhem, childlike demeanor merged with crazy violence, you know? And there's, I think there's a little bit of that happening in Roman Sionis too. It's just kind of to Keith's point, it's just more distasteful. It's not as likable as, as it is with, with Harley. But I think McGregor's trying. I think he's trying to pull that out of that character. And he you definitely get little 
glimpses of it here and there. So where do you feel like this fits into like the state of the comic book film circa 2020? I mean, is, is this a sign that there's going to be more adventurous approaches? I mean, the film is not doing well at the box office. Unfortunately. So it does not yeah. bode well for more films like it. But um, do, you, do you get a sense it's kind of a reaction to, you know, I think there's, I think there's a, certain amount of, a certain amount of fatigue setting in because it is becoming, uh, there is sort of a, a predictability to what a comic book film is going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a sign that there was going to be more films trying to break that mold or is this sort of an outlier? I mean, I think, again, we have to point to Deadpool here, which was uh, both of those were extremely successful and working in a, a very similar mold that this movie is is working in. So I think there's definitely room for this type of movie to be a hit. The fact that it's not, I mean, I feel cynical saying it, but I do think it has to do with some deeply ingrained sexism on the part of audiences. And the name doesn't help. Like, I I understand the impulse behind the name change, um, but I still don't know, even if it was just called Harley Quinn, if it would have pulled a Deadpool size audience simply by virtue of it being about a female character. And that sucks to say in, in this day and age, especially when, you know, Wonder Woman was also a hugely successful female led comic book film. But this is a more difficult, less straightforward type of comic book character. Again, akin to Deadpool. And it seems like we have the culture is willing to engage with that sort of difficult character in a comic book movie context when it's a man and maybe less so when it's a woman. I wonder if the R rating was an issue too. I think the Deadpools are R. Yeah. They, oh, so, yeah. I mean, oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, they're like the highest grossing R movies. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, I wonder if there's also though, perhaps a familiarity with Ryan Reynolds of that type of role. You know, yeah. like you kind of just know what you're going to get with that guy. <laughs> I don't know why people would want that, but they, they, they do. I don't know either. Uh, they, they, do, keep... they do want it. Um, yeah. and with Margot Robbie, there, maybe there are no expectations, the expectations for you don't know what to expect. I don't know. But yeah, I think you're, I think they're probably just, you're probably right on this. Uh, which is really, which is extremely depressing because it, because this is, even though it's is a film that I think is quite flawed, it is better than a lot of movies that are very successful. Deadpool, you know, foremost among them, and much better than Suicide Squad, which oh, yeah. which did better than this. And Harley was like a huge standout in, like you know, she was a favorite cosplay character, like you know, like Harley was a hit in the context of Suicide Squad. So it's extra frustrating that people don't seem to be responding to her in this context. Yeah, and I think a big problem with the success of Harley and Suicide Squad is she's framed so by the male gaze, it's like disgusting. Mm-hmm. There's like a shot of her bending over to grab something that after she just broke a window, ooh, she's so bad. Look at that ass. Like, it's like, yeah. seriously? Please. Mm-hmm. Um, but this movie, I feel like, is very feminine. I mean, that hair tie moment is so <laughs> striking to me because of that. It's just such, it's like a small moment that I can imagine happening between two girls in a bathroom at a club that I'm at when I've drank too much and I'm kind of mm-hmm. like I don't know what's up and I need a hair tie oh look there's a woman who can give me a hair tie this is great camaraderie I love it so I think part of it is that like this movie has really taken Harley out of simply being like a hot sidekick who's just a disruptor and really like yes. placed us in her head in sometimes interesting ways like I really thought the diamonds are a girl's best friend moment was really interesting especially in light of the fact that Margot Robbie has spoken at length in interviews and also she shows in what she produces and what she acts in that she really does not like the blonde bombshell moniker and she really pushes against it and there's like an interview with her in Vogue cover story pegged to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where she talks about like not wanting to be called a blonde bombshell and I think that Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend moment is such an interesting star moment of awareness of your image and also pushing against it in a way so there's a lot of little smart touches in this movie that have just really stayed with me yeah well, at that point, let's uh, close the book on this temporarily. We'll take a short break, and we're going to reopen the book and talk about it in relation to Thelma and Louise. They're all here for me, aren't they? No. They're not? No, they're not. 
you know what that means? That means he's not just after the kid anymore. He's after all of us. Sure as hell after me. I just robbed him. You just betrayed him. You just killed his BFF. And you're dumb enough to be building a case against him. So, unless we all want to die very unpleasant deaths and let Roma go finger fishing in the kid's intestinal tract, we're going to have to work together. <sighs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Now it's time for Connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. I think we're going to find a lot, and, and I think one of the Connections is underlined by a song in the uh, in the film, Birds of Prey, uh, sung by Black Canary, when she's in kind of a slowed-down cover version of James Brown. It's a man's, 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 man's world. Lots of mans in there to emphasize the point, and I think that's uh, certainly a, a subtext of Birds of Prey, uh, and, and it's very much uh, part of uh, Thelma and Lee. So let's start there. What different ways does this film depict the patriarchy, to, for want of a better term? I mean, the the word emancipation is right there in the title of Birds of Prey. You know, both of these movies are about sort of women discovering themselves in some way outside of a man's control. You know, and in Birds of Prey, like, obviously, the Joker is sort of this ghostly figure in the beginning that Harley is trying to extract herself from both in reputation and in emotion. Um, but, you know, it strikes me that her sort of her low point in the movie is basically like her considering like giving herself up to be Roman's girl the way that she was the Joker, you know, and there's a similar tension with Dinah's character and the whole little bird thing, you know, where this is, which is where the movie's central motif of, you know, caged and freed birds really plays out the strongest. Mm-hmm. So Birds of Prey is definitely playing very explicitly with the theme of, you know, female emancipation from specific men. In Thelma and Louise, it feels like it's taking that attack in a little more universal way, um, sort of them discovering themselves outside of just men's expectations more generally. Like, obviously, Thelma is extracting herself from a, a terrible husband. But as the movie goes on, it feels like it's not really about him. She's not reacting to him like he's he's kind of an afterthought after the mm-hmm. after the the rape incident and it's more about her discovering like i said in the first part like how to be a person outside of the a system of patriarchy and the expectations that it has of her. I mean, I agree that Thelma and Louise has a more broader outlook when it comes to dissecting the patriarchy. But I do think Birds of Prey is really good at interweaving these moments that consider the ways women have been, to take a word from Genevieve, caged by men. Like there's a moment where Harley is drunk and she's outside with a dude that she had met in the club and she's saying she wants to go home and mm-hmm. he's has other plans in mind and it's it really sort of strikes me because it feels like it's almost cut from a different film because it's such a like real moment and there's been times in my life where I've seen men with women and I've like you know interjected myself in there and like got a woman a cab I never did a great roundhouse kick but one day I hope to do a really great roundhouse kick in like really tight gold pants that will happen one day so it's like moments like that really worked for me and I was like really taken aback that a movie like this could actually do that um because I was Going into Birds of Prey, I was really bracing myself for like very girl powery, empty moments. And luckily, I feel like the film, even though it's again, it's not a deep film. I think the film is most trying to do is just have some fun with these ideas. I don't think it's really trying to make like Mm -hmm. a super grand message about women and feminism and the ways men control women, which I think works in its favor, that is not trying to do something too ambitious in that way. I think that could have really weighed down the film. Yeah, that moment that you mentioned was the moment in Birds of Prey where I thought, there's the Thelma and Louise connection (laughs) there. That scene reminded me so much of the movie and it made it clear that it was a, probably a good idea to pair these movies. And I think there's the, the other I, sort of idea at play in both of these movies is uh, the power of 
you know, solidarity between women who get strength from each other and, and are able to kind of go to battle together. Um, and, you know, and that, that's something that takes a little bit of time to form. Uh, I mean, obviously, Thelma and Louise are friends, you know, when the movie starts, but, you know, they don't become outlaws until later. <laughs> well, in, and that's what's striking to me about that moment in Birds of Prey where Dinah comes to Harley's defense is because at that point, she doesn't like Harley at all, you know, and, and contrasted with Thelma and Louise, like uh, Louise is protecting her friend in that moment. It's worth noting, I think, that Birds of Prey engages with that idea of women protecting each other outside the context of friendship. It's the shared experience of women in a man's world, regardless of what you actually have in common with that woman. I think it's important, actually, that even though the women in Birds of Prey do bond to a certain extent, they're not like BFFs, you know, like then and Harley kind of sucks all the all the way to the end, you know, and she leaves them. She she steals <laughs> Dinah's car at the end, you know, <laughs> and that like again, that's sort of the equality of of you know feminist storytelling is allowing your female characters to be shitty sometimes and to not like each other and to not be rah rah girl power together all the time, but to still find a way together to navigate this world where the deck is stacked against them yeah i mean that's such a critical point i mean i really like that line reading of Mogarabi where she just kind of confesses I- i'm a terrible person <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um but th- but that's a refreshing and that was one of the things i did really like about birds of prey because i mean you know you get that one moment in avengers endgame where you get like all of the women of you know Lord. marvel are all getting together and it's just like this what this iconic image of power and it's also perfect you know and like i like the idea that we're just full of misfits and outlaws and you know terrible people to some degree people who don't behave properly and don't always make the right decisions and you know there's something enjoyably messy about that relationship the all, all the relationships um you know and the, and the, yet they still have to kind of come together and um are more powerful together i i yeah the messiness of that is welcome and it's welcome in thelma and louise too because it's not like they don't make mistakes. I mean, she probably shouldn't have shot that guy. I mean, you know, he's he's a horrible person. But in general, it's a bad idea to sh- murder people. Probably, should mur- <laughs> yeah. probably should not murder people. Um, you know, that, that's kind of an advance. I mean, that's sort of what you hope for. Are movies that acknowledge the complexity of characters, like that strength is not the only quality that these women have. That they have a lot of other things going on as well and uh, that's kind of something that kind of ties these films together pretty well for me so since we're talking about those two sort of analogous scenes where both characters are or where characters are nearly sexually assaulted i want to use that to talk about another connection which is sort of the idea of wild women both films have these scenes of the main characters getting wasted at a club and being taken advantage of as a result. And it's obviously the inciting incident in Thelma and Louise. What's interesting to me about Thelma's experience at the Roadhouse is how quickly she moves beyond the impulse to feel shame over her behavior. Uh, as, as I've said several times, she sort of comes alive after that. And she does so through what might euphemistically be called improper behavior. You know, she she drinks, she smokes Louise's cigarettes, something she'd only pretended to do before then. She has a sexual fling. And then, of course, she robs a store. It's not precisely analogous to Harley Quinn's origin story or to Harley's uh, near assault. But uh, there are echoes of the idea that these women have been fundamentally changed through trauma that's been inflicted by men um, and turned into a less, quote unquote, civilized, less ladylike, but also more authentic and frankly, fun version of themselves. What I really like about Birds of Prey and something I'm actually writing about Margot Robbie's performance, because I think it's a really amazing testament to female excess there's something Mm. very excessive and unruly about harley she talks too much she talks too loud she drinks too much she vomits in somebody's purse you know she steals people's anything she wants basically and there's just something really freeing about watching a character like harley on screen Mm. i don't think we're afforded such freedom in day-to-day life and to see a character like that as a woman is kind of fun and thrilling and like I I felt maybe the third time I watched the movie second or third time I watched the movie 
I wanted to like go out and like punch somebody, <laughs> but I was like, oh, I don't have anybody I can punch, so I, I'll just go home and smoke some weed. That is what I ended up doing. Hollywood probably, probably approve yeah, of that. Only probably yeah. more positive use of that energy. <laughs> I don't know. She seems more of an uppers kind of gal, but uh... yeah, that's true. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, like Thelma doesn't quite get to the the level of a, of a Harley, but she does like kind of take some tentative steps into that don't give an F uh, attitude. And that is, it's exciting to watch as a woman and I guess as a man, I, I, I'll uh, let Scott and Keith sure. weigh, weigh, weigh in on that. But it, but it's, it's exciting because it's not something we get that often with female characters in movies, letting them be unruly and bad and make bad choices and, you know, just be wild and, and uninhibited. Yeah, like Angelica says, it's exciting to watch and to feel. Yeah, I mean, it's always kind of electrifying when characters get to um, burst out from the strictures of uh, expectations of, of society and, and um, become something else, especially when they feel they themselves feel you know, liberated and at times kind of joyful about it. And uh, in a way, you know, with Birds of Prey, I, I almost appreciated those smaller moments when that, that was happening. I mean, I, I, I like keep thinking, of course, about the breakfast sandwich, where I always, which I which I desperately want. But I but I, I like the idea of just of the, the obsession with this <laughs> the sandwich as she's going through this whole sequence. I mean, it's just it's all so it's just, it's just a, it's a lot of fun that, that nothing else matters to her that the fates of other people that don't even matter to her that, that, mm-hmm. that what, how she's going to get through the through any part of her day it's just everything is a hassle until she gets to this thing it's exciting i mean it's and it's you know and that feeling of liberation that feeling of of being able to do what you want of not having to play by the rules is 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 important and it's and of course you know for somebody like Thelma, I mean, it's it's. So we don't need to get much of a glimpse of her life with Daryl to know that everything she's able to do in that movie is so exciting. In fact, just her leaving on the journey and just kind of uh, you know leaving a note, not really talking to him at all about about going. I mean, that right from that moment, she's able to kind of break out. Yeah, I will say one complication with all that with Birds of Prey is the the Cassandra character because Scott listening to you talk about the breakfast sandwich and it's it's all she cares about in that moment and I think what's like exciting about that is so often women are put in the role of nurturer or caretaker or you know the person who cares about someone other than herself yeah. and in talking about this this connection of wild women what's exciting is uh the rejection of that and the embrace of yourself as the highest priority and your desires as the highest priority and by tying Harley to Cassandra, I feel like Birds of Prey like kind of wrestles with that when in the moment where Harley like gives Cassandra up, but she does come back around to protecting her. And in the end, she's sort of her little she's her apprentice, you know, and so she does kind of end up in this role of mother figure or big sister, you know, which is a more sort of traditionally feminine role in, in in movies so it's about the taming of harley quinn ultimately. yeah it's a little bit of that but you know she's still very much herself in that moment and neither she nor cassandra are trying to change each other or uh subdue each other in any way so it doesn't like really feel like an inversion of harley's character but it does like i said sort of complicate the notion that she uh it puts herself and her own desires first now that she is uh emancipated from the joker i think you know one thing that i had in mind like going into the movie and i don't know if you guys felt the same way is that The relationship between Harley and the Joker has always been one that's abusive, even if the comics and Batman, the animated series never like outright said, oh, this is an abusive relationship. They just had him like slapping her, pushing her out of windows, you know, stuff like that. And so even though they did never depict any of that, like in Birds of Prey or even hint that that's like an aspect of the relationship, that's something that weighed on my mind, like going into the movie and definitely affected how I read her emancipation. Yeah, you almost don't get enough of the of the Joker backstory to yeah. understand what it means for her to break away from it. Um, 
And you certainly didn't get it in Suicide Squad. I kind of think it, I was kind of disappointed this film did detach itself more from Suicide Squad. That kind of kept the the I fell in Nevada Chemicals two origin story that was totally unnecessary <laughs> to explain <laughs> Harley away, you know. And and uh, but uh, uh, but well, think, and we got our Jai Courtney shout out, which was absolutely necessary. That was something. Yeah. That was a choice. <laughs> the choice was made. Yeah. Well, but on the other hand, we don't I don't necessarily want more of that version exactly. of the Joker, or at this point, really any version of the Joker. I'm a little no, Joker totally. out for a while, but um, we get just enough Joker in this movie, I think. Yeah, which is, yeah. <laughs> which is like we n- don't ever see his face, which is perfect. The Joker is a character that works in small doses. This is true in the comics. This is especially true on film. Dear God, I wish people would get over their obsession with the Joker. He's not that interesting, in my opinion. Oh, God, I shouldn't have said that, but whatever. (laughs) Here come the the emails. And and to go Uh, back to what we were saying. You're not going to get emails for our part. (laughs) 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 We we, we have a different kind of listenership, I think. (laughs) Well, and I mean, that's that criticism is also one that you could level at, at Harley. You know that she's best in small doses. I think uh, one of one of you even even said as much. You know, um, <laughs> but she works at feature length here. Uh, however, I don't think we're going to get you know five more interpretations of her in the next decade. Yeah. Um, the way we have the Joker, but she's going to be in. Robbie's going to be in the other the Suicide Squad reboot. Right? Yeah, the Suicide Squad. Presumably, it's called, is it called the Suicide? Yes. Okay. Do we know if it's in continuity with the other one, or I don't know. I mean, I'm guessing DC some of this. Con- ca- they don't seem to care anymore. <laughs> no, I don't. I kind of appreciate that DC's like, "Hey, you want to make a movie?" Yeah. And then the director's like, <laughs> "Yeah, let's make a movie." What was that other movie about, though? That uh, oh, don't forget about it. Just, just, just leave it in the trash. It's okay. It's okay. Forget about it. Just do whatever you want. So I'm like, fine if they don't super connect it. But I mean, some of the history will obviously stay intact because mm-hmm. there's some cast members who are returning. But it's also like such a bad movie to do, like to keep much of anything from. Like Suicide Squad is just really. There's not much redeemable about that no, movie. No, surely not. It's just like a bunch of gobbledygook. Yeah, that was a low point for me. Actually, that one, that one's like, and it, it, it was toward the end of the summer. I remember. Mm-hmm. I think I talked about this on the episode, but it was like toward the end. It was just them and this all of this wall of CGI and the soundtrack was blaring. I was like, mm-hmm. I'm like, maybe I'm done with movies. <laughs> maybe the movies <laughs> I had a good run, and this is the end of the line. Yeah, know? that was that was definitely me in Endgame. I was yeah. like, I can't believe I'm still here and this movie is. Still going. I still, like the, I still like the Marvels. I gotta say, but but you know, I don't. Oh, yeah. it's, it's few. That, it's rare that I absolutely love them, but that's a whole other podcast. Yeah, yeah that is a whole always, other podcast. Like high floor, low ceiling. That's my take on the whole yeah. thing. I use that line in a piece I wrote. Actually, you can't. I mean, like that's the yeah. thing. Like they just—they're all aimed towards the same same deal. But we're not talking about Marvel. We're talking no, about we're DC. Not. Things are wild and crazy. Yeah, I, <laughs> the thought I had—I actually touched on this a little bit—is is that. Thelma Louise was able to kind of kind of sneak in what it wanted to sneak in because it looked like an, a buddy movie, an action movie, or something, something we'd seen before. And this is kind of trying to, to Trojan horse stuff into a superhero movie. Is that how it's done? Is that is that the genre? Can you be subversive in the superhero genre? I mean, I think, um, I mean, I know I'm in the low end of appreciation for this one. I think people feel that like this is successful at doing that. But is that, is that something we could see more going forward since superhero movies show no sign of going away? I think there's like too much of a conservatism with regard yeah. to to what you can even do at that scale and that budget with those expectations with the type of audience you need to get. The counter example is Black Panther, which actually does do a lot of interesting but it's, stuff. But it's, ta- but it's tampered. It's also very much a Marvel film. Yeah, and there's a lot. Of, yep. it, there are many elements of that movie that are that are I think a little bit watered down or, or not as strong as it would, they would be if um you know I don't think that movie is all that it could be. And no, I, think, I, I think, completely I think there's something agree. Institutionally. That is limiting that. It gets to like two thirds of the way there, but I think yeah, it's, no, I think it's a really it's good fine. One, but. Um, but like, and so, so I, I'm, I'm skeptical uh, that you can have that kind of subversion just because the scale is so high. I mean, with Thelma and Louise, I mean, we, as I was saying, I think it was at the time of fifteen or sixteen million dollar production. That's a different, you know. I mean, that that yeah, obviously you would that would be higher now, uh, but still gives you the freedom. It's an original film, gives you the freedom to. Uh, to play around a lot more in, mm. in the genre, in, in the road movie, with the road movie genre, with the western, uh, with all of these sorts of sorts of tropes, um, and uh, I just I don't see 
a superhero film provoking in the same way. I mean, yeah. I, I, pe- I guess people will say Joker did that, but I'm not going to no. say it. <laughs> I cannot say that. And different medium, but Watchmen too on TV. Yeah. You know, like, like there are, I actually think TV might mm. be better equipped to shoehorn in these statements into a, a, you know, a comic book form, but being able to say something bigger than blockbuster entertainment as the the primary motivator so. i mean this not to get too far off track and it makes me feel like an old fogey again but i also feel like the ability of fans to talk back is really mm. kind of turning disastrous in some ways and, and and i the fact that you know fans didn't like the way sonic looked so they took it back and retooled it and made a lot of money i think it takes such a horrible precedent but i i feel like there is sort of a the you know the people that the fans want to keep stuff in line and I think it's, it's not really a great impulse. I think, you know, the, the fact that the world was driven mad by the last Jedi <laughs> and then, and then we got this very conservative final entry in that, in that series. Um, you know, if that's the way things are going, I, I don't think that's a good, that's a, that's a great direction. No, it's not. It's actually kind of scary. Uh, not to end on a glum note, because I mean, <laughs> both these films got made, both of them got out there and both of them are, are finding an appreciative audience and uh that's the sometimes that's that's the best you can hope for so thelma louise is widely available on streaming services and there's a blu-ray edition with two really good commentary tracks one by ridley scott and one with sarandon davis and curry uh both worth listening to uh birds of prey is in theaters now we'll be right back with your next picture show Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Genevieve, what in the film or television world has been good for you lately? <laughs> yes, it is a TV show, but it is also a film-related item in that it is a new adaptation of a story that has been made into a film once before. It's Hulu's new take on High Fidelity, the Nick Hornby novel that was made into a 2000 film starring John Cusack as a record store owner who obsesses over his musical tastes and past heartbreaks in equal measure. I actually still like that film quite a bit, even though Cusack's Rob kind of sucks on multiple (laughs) levels, uh, which I'd argue is sort of the point, uh, but also complicates the film's romantic trajectory in a big way. So the reason I dig Hulu's new version, which casts Zoe Kravitz as Rob, is not because turning that character into a bisexual woman of color suddenly makes her more likable. Uh, it definitely doesn't. This Rob is still obnoxiously self-centered. But it's because the episodic TV format allows the story to spread out and relax a bit more without the drive toward a happy rom-com ending. The first few episodes of the 10-episode season hew pretty closely to the movie slash book, down to specific dialogue at times. But as the season progresses beyond the gimmick of Rob revisiting her top five heartbreaks, it starts to develop its own personality and becomes less laser-focused on this one particular romantic relationship, uh, though that relationship does still form the backbone of the season. Uh, But we also get to spend more time exploring the world around Rob, in particular the lives of her co-workers at the record store, who are played by Divine Joy Randolph, uh, a breakout from Dolomite Is My Name, who is also a standout here, and David H. Holmes, who gets a standalone episode devoted to him that's one of the season's best, precisely because it takes us away from Rob's point of view for a while and allows the show to explore its central themes from a different angle. If you're familiar with the source material, either book or film, it's a really interesting and confident adaptation exercise. Uh, And if you're not, it's an easy-to-watch, well-done half-hour series with obviously a vast and excellent soundtrack, and I would recommend High Fidelity. (laughs) I confess to watching like 10 minutes of the first episode and just mm. never wanting to see it again <laughs> uh, and, and, but now i see because it was just it, the idea of it was like why why <laughs> like why why have you taken this thing that was that was so specifically about a particular type of dude mm-hmm. and reversing that and, and, and i think i think that for those first 10 minutes are, were just so much a an echo of what i'd seen done in the film adaptation from 20 years ago that the question of why sort of came to my brain but of course 10 minutes is not a particularly good sample it's really not of, of a show <laughs> and, so, and, 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 and since then virtually everyone I know has been very excited about the show so I'm, I'm kind of eager to revisit it for sure uh, so I so I don't please go on Genevieve's 
recommendation <laughs> rather than my t- my ten my uh, quite unfair ten minute uh, I, I, assessment I mean, of it. That's a very uh, original Rob uh, uh, movie just pulled there. So yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. I mean, in that film, I mean that film did have some resonance with <laughs> with me, given it, you know, t- given it's in Chicago and it's about a certain type of person and mind and you know i i definitely felt uh that film um uh in a big way uh, when it came out but i'm kind of excited to see it from a different perspective and and uh by all accounts it's as good as you say i mean i i don't want to like oversell it it's not like great capital g television capital t you know like it's it, it's a it's an easy watch how many you episodes know? in the first season 10 okay and they're half hour episodes and um but you know like like I said, Rob is not the easiest character to like, and I, I I like that the show doesn't try to make her more likable because she she is a woman now. But you know the the supporting characters and just the world of it, I think, are are such a draw that you know even if the story is maybe a little sticky at points, uh, the I I just I like spending time in the show's world, so I would still recommend it. But you know. Don't go into it with exceptionally high high <laughs> expectations, please, Scott. No, of course not. <laughs> uh, Angelica, what about you? I recently watched the Paul Mazursky movie, An Unmarried Woman from 1978. Um, I rewatched it for a project I'm working on um, that hasn't been announced yet. And it's just such a beautiful portrayal of like a second coming of age for a woman. Like the whole premise is that the main character played by Jill Clayburgh ends up finding out from her husband just on the side of the street one day after having lunch that he's been having an affair for over a year and he wants a divorce um, and he's in love and with this other woman and it's a simple story well told basically because it tracks her really coming into her own and Clayburgh's performance is so beautifully rendered and precise and intimate Um, and it's a very beautiful portrayal of New York and has really good supporting characters and it's just a kind of movie that I want to live in basically where can people see it I don't know if it's like streaming for free anywhere, but I know you can rent it from Amazon. Okay. Yeah, I've never seen that one. And it's weird. You never really, you don't get a lot of mention of uh, Paul Mazursky in general anymore, but he's he made a lot of really interesting movies. And there was a time, you know, when 89, when Enemies of Love Story came out, that that was kind of a minor sensation. Yeah. Because it was sort of a big Lena Olin breakthrough on top of everything else. But um I'm excited for whatever it is that you're working on. Yeah, and Unmarried <laughs> Woman is, I think, a really potent entry in feminist cinema because there's lots of really interesting small moments. Like there's an exchange that the main character has with her daughter where her daughter mentions that the girls in her class helped raise money for another girl who needed an abortion. And it's just like the small moment and the small exchange between mother and daughter about abortion. And it's like... You don't hear that word enough in movies and TV. I feel like film is becoming less squeamish talking about it. But to see that in a 1978 movie and just like talking naturally about things that were happening in feminist conversations at the time, just really powerful. So, Scott, what's good for you lately? Well, I saw the movie The Assistant, directed by Kitty Green. And I was completely blown away by how good this film is. I don't think it's getting talked about enough. Um, this is uh, the star. This is a film stars uh, Julia Garner, who's always been fascinating to me mm-hmm. uh, on the Americans, um, and then um, and then on Ozark as well. She's quite quite good as the assistant. She plays it. She's she's somebody who is who, it's it's one day out of her life as an as an assistant at a company that is very much like what uh, you know film production company run by a Harvey Weinstein-esque mm. you know predatory dude and um and she's picks up on what's going on the film is very uh, much a mood piece and a tone piece i mean I, I know that audiences have been thrown off by it there's a lot of like low ratings and reports of walkouts and this sort of thing but again these are these are all things that should entice a certain type of viewer <laughs> uh because it is so it has so much integrity and aesthetic discipline and it has this 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 quality it wants to kind of immerse you in an atmosphere of paranoia and oppression and uh and, and put you in the shoes of this of this woman who 
has no power whatsoever and yet is getting enough information to where she's repulsed and alarmed uh, by what's going on. And so and, and it kind of all builds to, to a scene where she reports what she's observed to uh, someone in HR. <laughs> <laughs> played by Matthew McFadden of uh of, of course <laughs> of succession fame and um and it's just like the scene it's it's a such a brilliant film, uh, scene it's like the the scene the whole movie kind of builds up to and uh, and a really good uh example of why you should never ever tell HR people anything about anything <laughs> you're, not, uh, you're not speaking from experience I, 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 yeah <laughs> you know what I am speaking from experience uh, I mean nothing like this I didn't have an experience like she has but uh, suffice to say uh, people in HR tend to side with management on a lot of issues that's kind of their job so and rather than rank and file employees but I don't know this the quality I think this film is just like a perfect little thing it doesn't try to do too much it's very minimalist uh, and Kitty Green just directs the hell out of it she did um, this quite interesting documentary that was on Netflix called Casting John Jean Benet that was her oh I love that film. movie yeah and it's got and you can you know and of course that one again you know not your typical documentary at all no. and this is not your typical drama so if you have adventurous tastes in, in, in movies and, and, and kind of want to see something you know Gene Dealman-esque um, the assistant is for you I really loved it Keith I occasionally write about international horror films for Fangoria which is fun because I get to seek out and recommend movies for, for readers to, to check out a simple thing and I caught up with a film called The Wailing from 2016. It's a Korean film directed by uh, Na Hong Jin. And I'm not really sure to, how to describe it other than the various things it resembles at different points. It's a two and a half hour film that kind of begins as a police procedural and at, at various points kind of segues into an exorcism story, a ghost story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it threatens to become a zombie movie at certain times. And it's funny in some disarming ways, especially early on, but it all turns into just a very grim depiction of spirituality and life in general. Uh, it's, it starts like this. It, it, uh, an actor named uh, Kwok Doan plays a, a uh, policeman in, in a very rural Korean community um, who is there are strange goings on possibly tied to the arrival of a, a Japanese stranger. And it kind of becomes sort of this, this almost like this mob mentality against um, this Japanese man who's moved, moved to the outskirts of the village. And from there it progresses to, you know, they bring in shamans. There are all kinds of supernatural yeah. goings on. It would, it's, I make it sound like it's all over the place, but it, it is totally very consistent and extremely stylishly and effectively directed it and, 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 scary as as well you know i always say i gotta sort out my thoughts before i write anything about it but scott you saw this movie too what, what was what was your impression of um it? yeah i saw this movie at, at music box and the smaller theater and mm. it, they and they sold it out i mean this is actually kind of a minor minor hit uh, yeah yeah uh, uh, sensation we'll, we'll and, and it is um i just remember it being absolutely bananas and people yeah. having a ball watching it it was just because it, it is um so intense but it's also it also has a good you know dark sense of humor and um it, it reminded me of of why i fell in love with sort of new korean cinema in the first place that it's just mm-hmm. it's so unpredictable and mm-hmm. and uh it goes to so many strange and unexpected places i mean it's, um, it begins to, i think i don't know if it's a conscious homage or not but it reminds me of memories of murder yep, in the beginning yeah, because that, it's yeah. these, these uh but, you know pro- cop provincial and, cops who are yeah. way over their head and don't know what they're getting into yeah. but it goes it goes places from there no, no, I, <laughs> I, I, it's a good choice if you haven't seen it's a, it's a, you saw it on shutter I saw, it's on shutter and i believe that it's only that's it's streaming on hoopla as well uh, if you had that service, right. which yeah, we is, have it yeah, in it's, Chicago. It's, 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 yeah, it's a, it's a good one. It's, yeah, um, take that canopy people. Canopy people are always, <laughs> yeah, people are always holding it, holding up, uh, holding over their Wiseman collection. We've got the whaling. We do have, we do have hoopla. So, uh, and I would recommend taking it out. And that's it for this edition of the Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will come out. March 11th and March 18th. Genevieve, what's coming up next? For our next episodes, we'll be considering two stories about awful men and the women they menace via mind games. We'll start with 1944's Gaslight, George Cooker's adaptation of a popular stage play starring Charles Boyer as a charming composer and Ingrid Bergman as his new bride, who comes to believe she's going insane. 
Then we'll discuss Lee Whannell's new take on The Invisible Man, a twist on a classic movie monster story in which Elizabeth Moss comes to believe her abusive late husband might not be so late after all, and that he might have achieved a breakthrough in hiding in plain sight prior to his alleged passing. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion with Thelma and Louise and Birds of Prey and anything else film-related that you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Scott? Uh, yeah, well, you can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. And you can find my work at the New York Times, um, uh, NPR, uh, The Ringer. I'm also the editor-in-chief of Oscilloscope's Musings blog. I don't think they like to call it, have it called a blog, though, but whatever. Yeah, I'm calling it that. Uh, uh, what about you, Genevieve? I am the deputy TV editor at Vulture.com, where I occasionally edit the, the lovely Angelica, uh, as well as uh, many other writers, including Scott and Keith sometimes. Well, look, look I'm just editing all of you guys here. <laughs> yeah. um, and you can find me on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Uh, Angelica. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Angelica Bastian. That's Angelica Rugrat spelling. Bastian, B-A-S-T-I-E-N. Um, I'm a staff writer at Vulture and the proud cat mom to Professor Butch Cassidy and Paul Newman. Um, there are... If you decide to follow me on Twitter, you will see a lot of those cats as well as a lot of Keanu-related tweets <laughs> and tweets about classic Hollywood, specifically Betty Davis, who I am ride or die for to this day. <laughs> and Keith, what about you? Well, first of all, thanks for joining us. It was great having you. I'm excited to have you back sometime. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at kfips3000. I'm a freelance writer. I'm working on a book about Nicolas Cage movies. I write for Vulture and The Ringer and... Uh, Mel Magazine, I write for Fangoria, I do the What's Coming Up Next thing for Rolling Stone every month, and what else do I do? TV Guide, I write for them, you know, I write for a bunch of people. Um, <laughs> you can find our absent co-host, Tasha Robinson, who is the film and TV editor at Polygon, on Twitter at, at Tasha Robinson. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at, at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance producing the podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be a part of the film spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. This is a